0: I don't know how to perfectly braid these things together, you know, starting from Buddhist practice, from Zen practice, and moving out into a world of activism, of politics, of injustice, and doing that in a way that doesn't dilute what we learn when we sit on the cushion, what we learn when we let go of self and other in some way, of the division that we're so, seem so deeply mired in right now in this country and in this phase of history. How do we hold that and go out and fight for a better world?
1: Matthew Kozan-Pelebski first traveled to Upaya in 2006 for a week-long retreat. He returned eight years later to join the resident body and was ordained as a novice priest by Roshi Joan Halifax in early 2016. From the winter of 2017 to the summer of 2019, he served as both Upaya's president and resident director, stewarding the day-to-day administration, the resident body, and Upaya's organizational strategy. Before moving to Abaya, Kozan worked as a social and political activist, organizing large-scale civic engagement on issues ranging from climate change and political corruption to criminal justice reform and workers' rights. In the spirit of engaged Buddhism, Kozan continues to serve as the chairman of Clean Choice Energy, which delivers renewable energy to thousands of families in the United States. He is a Dharma holder in the White Plum lineage and continues to live and serve at Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Now Kozan, when I was um, researching you, I was kind of chuckling just because there's so many there's so many parallels. In our lives, and now that I'm kind of actually looking at you online, (laughs) you're much younger than me. But it's like beard, and you know, it's uh, it's just kind of funny um, just to listen and talk with you. And I think one of the parts that really sort of struck me that I recognized in myself. Um or I guess this is sort of a projection I hope it's not too too offensive a projection, but I kept hearing this hunger for the ineffable, you know for the for the encounter with you know wh- what we might call don't know or you
2: know the the what can't be named, and
1: you know it's such a big question it, like even what is this doesn't, doesn't feel sometimes like enough. And I don't know if you can give a little texture or, you know, what that question, how that question just moves through you, rolls through you. You know, where's it come from? Or what's it feel like?
0: Well, Ian, first, thanks for having me. And, uh, and for starting there, because... um I realize I want to ask you the question first. I was a journalist for a while and I you know, have a thing I want to investigate. I, I loathe to be the one to answer the question. But uh, you were reminding me, uh, you had listened to a talk I gave when I first ordained about finding my way to Zen practice and to ordination. And from this perspective, I'm I'm thinking back to uh, that drive to be um, to be immersed fully in that mystery, to be um, investigating the unknown or uh, to kind of let go of knowing mine, all these terms that come to mind to me now are not at all, I think, what drove me to practice mm-hmm. um There was a sense of uh, deep desire to get at the marrow of life that I think we're all in a way born with and some of us find ways to pursue that. Uh, You know, uh, Roshi Norman Fisher says, we all want to be monks, that some part of all of us wants that pursuit, that life and for me i think it was being born after the death of my sister who had died tragically uh shortly before i was born and i spent the early years of my life with that loss with the loss of my mother who was distraught from that and spending time in a cemetery and spending time close to death uh really brings you close to life of course and this um question of how we be most fully ourselves um, and how we really fully live this life, I think, was just there at the beginning. And alongside that was us born into a a social justice family, an activist family. And uh, I feel kind of grateful to have uh, inherited that drive to make the world a better place. And there was also always this feeling of um, burnout, of like something about trying to change the world from the outside being um, both exhausting and missing something for me. And so it was really, you know, I I had experiences with Buddhist practice from a young age, had experiences with different traditions uh, throughout my teens and 20s. Um, but I think it was sitting in practice, really sitting in zazen and finding some taste of being uh, not separate from this life that gave a different color to that whole pursuit, that whole drive. Uh, And then you can't turn back.
1: You know, I have this, personal curiosity in the sense that you know so i went to harvard divinity school and you came here for a year and you're like nope <laughs> I'm, I'm out <laughs> and I, there's lots of reasons i could give you why i i dropped out for a while actually and and went back and finished um but i'm wondering like why because i think there's that tradition there's a longing to know the ineffable by it through study yeah, and, just the longing to know it, you know, through experience. Right. And just having listened to some of your other talks as well, you you obviously do quite a, you know, you study also. And so I'm, I'm just curious about your relationship with study and, but also looking at the academy and being like, that's not necessarily for me. You know, I'm just I'm just curious about that whole part of your journey.
0: It was uh, I don't think those two paths are separate, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and we can understand them distinctly. It was revolutionary for me to, after kind of working in the marketplace, being a journalist and an activist, being a, a corporate advisor, you know, working at at high levels we're getting things done and knowing the right answer are prized. Um, being able to convince someone of your point of view, being able to work in complexity, uh, that those are the currency of kind of the, the life I knew um, mm-hmm. and modern workplace in a certain way, that to step back from that kind of doing into a more monastic community where the teacher is the schedule. The teacher is dropping preferences and attending to the schedule of the day. The teacher is, um, you know, being in community with others and how you show up for each other. And that has led me to... uh, see, remember, I think, what we all uh, learn from, which is the experience of our relationships, the experience of what's right in front of us, and the wisdom we already have to understand the depth of those experiences, to understand the beauty of those experiences. And I was, uh, you know, I had gone to an undergraduate uh, school, that you know an Ivy League school, and I'd studied and And I noticed when I went back to Harvard Divinity School that I was separating from my practice. It became really neck up. And that was my own experience of it. It could have been Mm -hmm. different, but it was not deepening my understanding of uh, Zen practice, of my own life, of my relationships. I was really kind of defaulting to something that had separated me from myself. And I just thought this isn't going to be the way for me to go. Mm-hmm. It helped that, I don't know if you had this experience when you were at Harvard Divinity School, but uh, two senior professors uh, beloved by the community start out the only required class in your first semester by telling you, you really don't want to do this academic thing. It's really <laughs> a slog. You know, I think they spent an hour and a half saying, Oof, the whole PhD world is just... If you could do anything else, please do. Mm-hmm. Thought, oh, I can. I, you know, I can be uh, a priest tending to a community, and that would maybe be
1: needed too. Yeah, I think the one, you know, maybe we were on different tracks there. And I was on the. Were you on the MTS or the? Oh no, you said the MTS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were like that's the priestly track.
2: Yeah, yeah. But
1: it still felt like no, this is not the one for me yeah yeah so i don't know when that was but you you left and when you sat your first retreat in upaya uh that was 2006 um had you been sitting already at this point or was that how did you end up with that first week-long retreat
0: you know like a lot of westerners in the Zen tradition, I find I had a complicated relationship to religion in my youth, and so my father was kind of secular Jew, and I wanted to be a kind of maybe more religious Jew, and that was uh, frowned upon. He he'd kind of escaped that world, and mm-hmm. um, and I was looking for religious life. I think from a very young age. And by stepping outside of the tradition that I was born into, which had been secularized in my family, um, I found a way to express this this desire, this searching, um, this curiosity. And that was, uh, you know, when I was 13, uh, my mom had helped organize something called the World Festival of Sacred Music which was a kind of dream of the Dalai Lamas for the sacred traditions of the world to come together and have a music festival for a month. And there was one in Johannesburg and I think one in Berlin and one in LA. And so the one in LA, he opened and I was, I believe 13 and he, I kind of just went up to him when I saw him at the opening, uh, having no idea really what I was getting into or how inappropriate that was. And, uh, Shook his hand, and which is also incredibly inappropriate, and uh, and there was this uh, presence to him and this interaction. Literally, now that I think about it, this kind of warm hand to warm hand mm-hmm. transmission of um, what it would mean to to follow a, a spiritual life, a spiritual path that he represents, um, that he has given his whole life to. And that turned me towards Buddhist practice. So I started meditating right after that and studying and spent time in Sikkim in India. But uh, I was always afraid to dedicate my life to this practice because it didn't seem like a valid life choice
2: until mm-hmm. a certain point where that fear became ridiculous. Well, I think there's a lot of pressure uh, externally. Yeah. Um, that, you know, we live in a capitalist culture. Yeah. That
1: it's hard to value relationship. Yeah. You know, the intimacy that's cultivated, whether it's spiritual or, you know, it's all all spiritual, but whether it's with the ineffable or, or, you know, that you're with the people you're having dinner with over the... At, you know, in the Zendom, it's like, mm-hmm. um, yes, that doesn't work well in a capitalist culture. <laughs> so there's a lot of pressure. There, and I think it's why you hear a lot of people, you know, having second careers because they, they come back eventually having lived somebody else's dream to yeah. be a lawyer or, or something first. You
0: yeah, know? I think that's absolutely right. And uh, that pressure seems to only be increasing. Uh, you know, it's it's been a silver lining. There, there's maybe a thick silver lining to this pandemic, but people being forced to stop and consider mm-hmm. what nurtures them, what nourishes us, what connects us. And the incredible outpouring of people's interest in, in practice and in spiritual life has uh i think been a product of slowing down that rat race a little bit you just we we have time to think um and to feel
1: yeah i you know i'm i'm sort of like halfway divided on that one like i feel like some of my friends are working way more yeah than they ever were before mm-hmm. because it's like there's no commute so they just walk they mm-hmm. have breakfast or maybe they don't even have breakfast and you know they can hear the slack chime on their phone and they just go right in and start working and it's like i there's this part of me that it (laughs) like visions of capitalists in the corner just like (laughs) we thought this working from home would be terrible but really it's fantastic (laughs) you know we can overwork people like crazy And we do it to ourselves, I think, a lot of them, right? We have this pressure. And I also hear what you're saying in
2: that, you know, we here at the Cambridge Center, we have had
1: so many people sign up for these Zoom sittings, and they are there every day. And they just weren't, you know, before it was mostly residents, you know sometimes we get them at night but um now they're here a lot and uh, it sounds like there's people who are really coming to apaya as well through through the online
0: yeah i well you know i remember what it felt like to be a workaholic in the city in the rat race getting up early working all day uh there's a the 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 joy and the joy may be the wrong word, but the Mm -hmm. excitement of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And to keep that going somehow makes a lot of sense when the world is um, seemingly falling apart around us. But there's also the inevitable um, confrontation with, okay, what world are we living in now? When Mm -hmm. uh, there's a mass pandemic, when death is... possible to ignore, where there's racial injustice coming to the surface. I mean, this is just a year where it's very difficult to put your head down and ignore everything. Um, We had a presidential election. Yeah, we had a presidential election that was, you know, that presidential election. And the experience we've had here, I mean, it's a wonderful time to live in community. I feel very lucky. You know, we, we don't go out. Uh, people who come in uh, quarantine for 14 days, it means that there's 20 of us here all living together Mm -hmm. as a pod, as a family. Um, And there's a a great intimacy to that that a lot of people can't access right now. And so, what we've experienced is while closing down our programs, uh, Zen programs, educational programs, academic programs that we run here, 2,000 people come through about on a normal year, while we've shut those down we'll likely have more than 40,000 people who've logged on to join us for in the online sangha, in the cloud sangha. And this sense of not only wanting to practice deeply, which so many of them really do, and their homes have become zendos, and they are with us three sits a day, seven, eight sits when we're sitting Sishin, uh, practicing wholeheartedly, feeling this sense of, oh, the world's on fire. This mm-hmm. is what brings me to the cushion, which is beautiful for me to see uh, that, it you know, it sprouts out of our life, not out of the Zendo per se. You know, it's not, um, you don't have to come to a Zen center to practice like that. Um, but then there's also a whole bunch of people who want to feel connected. And that that's part of what our religious practice is, is just coming together in community. And so people living alone who haven't seen others for weeks or months, um, people taking care of family members who are dying, all of them coming and feeling like they're sitting with each other, getting to know each other, people who've never met really, like sitting every morning, seeing each other's faces, becoming good friends, and this sense that's unique you know, maybe in history, we've never had a digital pandemic before, but of this kind of sitting with all beings being represented in the way we're connected. It's ignited people. Of course, I'm only engaging with the people who come through this practice, but it's ignited the part of us that are monks,
2: the part of all, all of us that have that desire, that drive. There's, um, there's
1: a woman who lives here who uh, her dad has started to meditate mm-hmm. um, online. Mm-hmm. And it's become, and I think it's one of the ways that he feels like he can connect with her.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: now she was telling me, we're, you know, we had a big snowstorm here last night. So we were shoveling together this morning. And she was telling me about it. like what it's like to have her dad be a part of her life in mm. this way that has only been made possible through this very like peculiar set of circumstances Mm -hmm. and i i do wonder like what the future of zen is like zen practice or just Buddhist practice in general Uh i think on some levels a lot of zen centers had been very you know attached if you will to not having in you know Cameras in the Zendo. (laughs) And then all of a sudden there's this pandemic and now there are cameras in the Zendo. And do we go back when we know, right? When you know there are 40,000 people that log on. Yeah. What do we do now? What's the Bodhisattva vow mean now? Right? Like, what is it that we go back to when we have been vaccinated? When, like, do, do we do things the way we used to? I think that question
0: is alive for all of us in, in a couple ways. You know, one way is there seems to be this underlying grasping that's part of our grasping mind to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, you know, unfortunately, maybe this is related to... um President Trump's campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, there is always this to go back to when things were good. Mm -hmm. And particularly during a crisis like this, we have this instinct to uh, return things to the way they were, which of course is absurd. I mean, we know (laughs) when we reflect on it only for a moment, how um, strange that... Of an inclination that is, things will never go back to normal. Why would we even want them to? This right. is an opportunity to uh, meet things anew. Uh, what uh, what suffering and hardship it's been, uh, you know, earned through. And so, the question for for me and for us at Upaya is always what will serve, and it's why you know Upaya, our name is the skillful means to meet the moment uh, in a way that will best serve. And I think we're learning, or I've, my you know, opinion is this has been really helpful, that the digital community, the online sangha, people who never would have come here in, per- in person, who had jobs that they couldn't get away from, who couldn't have afforded the plane ticket from wherever they are, who wanted to sit with us here or to sit in some Zen community for decades, some of them. You know, I've talked to people who said, I've been meaning to come to Upaya since 89. And now I've been meaning to come
2: there.
0: (laughs) I I literally have been meaning to come to Upaya for couple of decades. (laughs) So now everyone with that common intention, everyone sewn together by that thread can sit together, can come Mm -hmm. together and talk about and study Dogen or can sit in silent retreat together. And then there's also knowing that being face-to-face, breathing in the same room, uh, cooking each other food Mm -hmm. is a way that we deepen our relationship to one another and to our practice that will never go away and that won't go away for us here, and I hope not the Buddhist community in this country. Um, And it's opened our eyes in particular to the kind of uh, depth of residential training and the way in which taking a step back from the marketplace and being in residential practice really doesn't have to be a path to priesthood. It doesn't have to be a path to a certain life. It is a well to draw from that is unique. It's you know, it's not meeting on Zoom. And so it it helps, I think, show us the value of these different ways of
2: stepping into relationship in our practice.
1: So Kozan, I, I actually want to shift a little bit. Be, I think in the sense that what you just shared about the you know the intimacy of the living together and this online world you are about to lead a course with uh do you call her roshi joan is that yeah. how you refer yeah, to her? Roshi roshi joan. Joan? yeah that's joan halifax for those who are listening so roshi joan like and you are and it's called socially engaged buddhism it's I don't know if you conceived this earlier as an in-person course or if it was always an online course, but now it looks like it's online. Um, and this is a sort of blending, I'm assuming, of you know your the fire you had with social justice, which it, you know this last year has been so important, I think, for the nation. And even the world, actually, I, I had a friend who was talking about how George Floyd was impacting. Like they were tearing down statues of Leopold in Belgium because of yeah. George
2: Floyd. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm.
1: So here you are taking, um, not that they're separate parts of your life, but certain passions that I think a lot of people separate: social justice and spirituality, and um helping to train people. I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you hope to see come out of that training.
0: It is a training we've launched during this pandemic. So it's in its final phase been conceived of as an online uh, year together, but really it draws from 20 years of developing um, courses and trainings, programs here at Upaya that are about deep practice and moving that deep practice into the world. And so part of this comes from our chaplaincy training program, which is a two-year program that we run. Um, And part of it is um, weaving in the wonderful practitioners who come through our doors, uh, like Wendy Johnson, the master gardener from Green Gulch Zen Center, um, and Tova Green, and um, many activists who, whose practice informs their activism. And so, you know, for me, it's important, and I'm really looking forward to it for a few reasons. One is, I don't know how to perfectly Braid these things together, you know, starting from uh, Buddhist practice, from Zen practice, and moving out into a world of activism, of politics, of injustice, and doing that in a way that uh, doesn't dilute what we learn when we sit on the cushion, what we Learn when we let go of self and other in some way, of uh, the division that we're so, seem so deeply mired in right now in this country and in this phase of history. How do we hold that and go out and fight wholeheartedly, tirelessly uh, for a better world? That's always the question. And I'm guessing the way that manifests now is different than it would have been yesterday. So, I'm looking forward to that. And we have incredible teachers coming through. I also, you know, something that led me to practice was being an activist and really suffering from activist burnout. Mm -hmm. From uh, the moral injury that comes from it, the kind of empathic distress that comes from it. Uh, I worked on a number of different issues. One was uh, criminal justice reform in an era where the drug war was still very much raging and 2.3 million people behind bars, the majority of them people of color for nonviolent drug offenses. It it seemed absurd to me. And yet all of us on the front lines trying to change that system barely moved the issue an inch, you know, each year. There was just, we didn't seem to get anywhere. And that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And your whole hope for a better world becomes externalized to like, can these systems be just? And uh, a a good friend of mine, uh, bef- just before I moved to Payet, took his own life. He was um, also an activist, largely a digital activist and was facing time behind bars for downloading academic articles illegally and talking about releasing them for free and was facing 35 years behind bars for, you know, being quite open about some views about what a social justice agenda would look like in terms of our uh, academic resources. And I was, I just couldn't, um, Tap into this the something to resource my activism, and the communities I were a part of were suffering from the same thing and so I think a big hope for this program is to provide that kind of uh, foundation for all of us um, to to teach one another how we do that best, to support one another, and to um, You know, practice the three tenets out in the world. So, the three tenets, this is uh, in Zen, the three pure precepts re uh, imagined by Bernie Glassman, who's Joan Halifax, Roshi's teacher. Uh, He envisions them as these kind of three tasks. The first is not knowing, often uh, the place we start in Zen, and really, starting from a place of not being the expert, starting from a place of mystery, of the ineffable, and the opportunity, the kind of creative opportunity that that provides to see things for truly what they are, what's right in front of you. And then to um, bear witness to the specificity of the situation you're in, to the relationship of uh, whatever community you're in, whatever issue you're addressing, and from there, from having grounded in not knowing and bearing witness, to practice compassionate action, to, to practice stepping in and uh, not separating from the situation. And so as we're slowly um, you know, finding our way to the end of the tunnel of this pandemic, as the administration is turning over. It seems like the perfect time to practice this together. Okay, how do we do this well? How do we resource ourselves well? How do we meet this moment and not, uh, you know, practice the things that give us resilience and that give us equanimity even now? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I've seen that, the empathetic burn, you know, that happens to people, right? It's, I used to work at a magazine and we would get these letter called piece work and we would get these letters of Quaker magazine. We'd get these letters from this guy every week talking about, you know, something was breaking his heart. And they, they were hard to read these letters because he he wasn't um wrong. hmm And I remember talking to my boss about it, and she was just like, <laughs> i like, you don't want to say, like, put a callus around that right? But if you don't have some way to mediate it, it moves beyond heartbreak to you can't see anything good.
2: Or that was this guy, you know, that's where he was at.
0: Yeah. If we only look at the suffering of the world, how are we not torn apart? How are we not overwhelmed? Right. And I think
1: the. You know, for all of the social justice training we do with people, one of the, th- what feels so lacking in so many, and I'm sure you've done a ton of these trainings too, like, how do you deal with it spiritually? Mm-hmm. Like, we know, I I used to do a lot of them in the church as a minister. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, we, more often than not, we use like, just frames spiritual frames yeah as like part of our rhetoric when i think back on it now rather than like let's deal with this so that your spirit is ready
2: yeah how did you deal with that with him
1: oh we we ignored him (laughs) You know, we, it's, you know, again, like you're publishing a magazine. Right. There's a lot of things to do. This is what we're doing. This is what's in front of us. Yeah. In front of it. Like, we can't respond to your four page handwritten letter. Like (laughs) it's a lot. And yet it was, I've never forgotten that. I mean, that was a long time ago. It was like over 20 years ago. Yeah. And I still remember the. You know what it was like to get that letter from him every week. Like, are you guys paying attention to this? And it's like, well,
2: there's a lot we're trying to pay attention to. I think
0: it's a it's part of our the structure of activism and it's just being a citizen in the world that we cannot know everything. We cannot fix everything. And we can't control everything. In fact, I'd probably replace everything with anything. (laughs) And and, um, there's this kind of outward stance we can develop uh, when we're socially engaged in that way that can be very destabilizing for us, which is like externalizing our lives onto the world, projecting our lives as... uh, writ large, the kind of gears of our civilization, of our communities. And I hope that in spiritual practice, one of the things we do is we step back from any of those narratives, from any of those, um, you know, visions of how things are or should be so that we can remember who we are, we can remember our lives, we use all sorts of terms for it, but just the healing power of stepping back. And why don't we do this? We don't do it because we think it's giving up, we think it's letting people down, we think it's being a party to the injustice we see. And so even stepping back for a few breaths seems um like we are letting the world down. And that is deeply ingrained in many of us. And actually, as we see when we're able to do it for a little bit, not helping anyone. Uh, It doesn't resource us to be helpful to our communities, to uh, the issues we care about. And I think that's what we come back to uh, rather than just useful frames, and these frames can be so useful, is starting from a place where we are allowing ourselves to do nothing, to see clearly, to really see clearly our own lives and the world we're in. And and then, you know, we're Mahayana Buddhists, we, we engage... From the perspective of the bodhisattva, and the question we always ask is, "How do I help? How do I be of service?" And if we're uh, driving ourselves crazy, if we can't sleep at night because the world's on fire, we can't help. And I think, in some way, that you know, that sounds rational, rational, and uh, maybe even sounds too rational. But in some way, the question is, what practice helps us feel that? What practice? Uh, invites us to feel our lives as whole and as connected and as capable of stepping into that tangle. Um, And it's not zazen for everyone, that's for sure. Uh, It is for some of us, but in the Buddhist community and in this activist community, which this year-long program is aimed at, the intersection of those, that that question probably hasn't been asked enough. And, you know, we are not the only one asking it. This is a um, part of a cultural trend of noticing, oh, yeah, this is important, too, and developing the resources for it.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Matthew Kozan-Pelebski encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for Upaya Zen Center at upaya.org. And I'll include links to the Zen Center, to Kozan's Dharma Talks, and uh, specifically for that uh, Engage Buddhism program that's coming up in the show notes. So please check that out. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.